Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Genesis 14. Genesis chapter 14. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 10. Genesis 14. We're going to read verses 11 through 20 to set the context today. Genesis 14. Follow along as I read verses 11 through 20. This is God's word. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Anar. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedolaomer, and the kings were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. May God give us ears to hear his word. What do you think is the most popular Bible verse in America? If they took a survey of Americans and asked them, what uh, Bible verses are you familiar with, what do you think they'd say? I imagine a lot would say John 3.16, which I heard some of you kind of whispering. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Uh, that verse is still advertised on bumper stickers, and you'll still see it on sort of cardboard signs at football games. Another verse, though, uh, usually taken out of context, which is very popular among Americans, is Matthew 7, 1. Uh, Judge not that you will be not judged. Uh, you've probably heard of that verse, even if this is your first time in a Christian church. Uh, often, for some reason, it's quoted in the King James Version, Judge not lest ye be judged. Here's another one, Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, we see that on greeting cards, on coffee mugs, very popular. Here's one more. God helps those who help themselves. You ever heard that one before? Most people believe that sentence comes from the Bible. In fact, from a recent survey, 75% of Americans and 68% of professing born-again Christians think that statement is taught in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but that does not come from Scripture. Anybody know who actually did uh, coin that sentence? It was Benjamin Franklin. And furthermore, depending on how you understand that phrase, God helps those who help themselves, it very well might contradict what the Bible teaches. Here, here's a sentence that's much more accurate, much more biblical, and it's actually going to be the theme of our sermon today. Not God helps those who help themselves, but God helps those who trust in him. God blesses, God assists, not those who work the hardest, 
but those who hope in him, who wait on him, who have confidence that he will do everything that he has promised. That's the kind of person God is delighted to help. In Genesis 14, the chapter we're going to be studying today, we're going to see this truth of God helping those who trust in him vividly displayed in the life of Abram. Even though Abram is this elderly nomad, uh, he's able to pull together his forces and defeat this confederacy of kings. And as we're going to see this victory, it came not because of his great military strength, not because of his strategy, but because his hope was in the Lord. The Lord was with him. And since Abraham trusted in the Lord, the Lord helped him, for again, God delights to help those whose hope is in him. Now, to quickly set the context for this morning, uh, this is our 20th sermon in the book of Genesis. Can you believe that? That's more than I thought we'd ever get. 20 sermons through Genesis. And we've come to the section of Genesis addressing the life and times of a man named Abram, who will soon be known as Abraham, the father of our faith. We've seen how God called Abram to himself, entirely apart from any goodness in him, entirely apart from any of his good works. God comes to him, and he calls him, sovereignly calls him to represent him here on earth. We saw how God made incredible promises to Abram. God will bless him, make his children as numerable as the stars of the heavens, and through one of his descendants, the Messiah, blessing will come to the entire earth. Well, when we last saw Abram last week, he had just parted ways with his neighbor, or pardon me, nephew Lot. Uh, you'll remember they were living on the same piece of property, but the land could not support them both. So Abram shows unusual generosity to Lot, and he says, Lot, you just pick out whatever land you want. You live there, and I'll take what's left over. And as we saw last week, Lot made his decision of where to live entirely on the basis of temporal factors, earthly factors. He did not consult the Lord. He did not consult eternal things. He just looked and he saw, look, that's the best land. I'm going to take that. And it just so happens to be the land that includes Sodom and Gomorrah. Keep that little detail in mind for that will be important for this morning's study and for later studies in Genesis as well. Well, coming here to chapter 14, there are three truths from this chapter I'd like you to notice with me this morning. Three practical truths. And the first of them is this. God's call to self-sacrifice. It'll be the theme of verses 1 through 16, God's call to self-sacrifice. Abram clearly demonstrates for us this virtue of sacrificing your time, your resources, even your safety to serve those in need. Now, if you've read Genesis 14, which I hope you did in your devotions, you'll know that this chapter recounts an ancient world war. I won't, I won't read the entire section for you. Let me just summarize the key details. In this chapter, we learn of a great king named Cato Laomer which is kind of a fun name to say. It's one I'd recommend to those of you who are expecting children, name your son that. Cato Laomer, he was evidently this mighty king, and he had a number of other kings under him. These other kings, they, they apparently had to pay some sort of yearly tax to him, this tribute. Well, after a number of years, five of these kingdoms that are under his rule, uh, they get kind of restless. They get kind of sick of paying taxes, and they quit paying tribute. Well, Cato Laomer, he can't let this just go by. Uh, they, he can't just allow rebellion to go unaddressed. So what does he do? He pulls together some of, his, some of his king buddies, and he goes and decides to crack down on this rebellion. So most of Genesis 14 is a detailed record of this mighty king, Cato Laomer, uh, pushing back rebellion, and in the process, gathering up even more kingdoms and kind of expanding his realm. It kind of reminds me of Lord of the Rings, if you remember those books. Now, at this point, you're probably wondering, what does any of this have to do with us? Well, here's where it gets relevant. One of the kingdoms that Cato Laomer conquers is Sodom. And you'll remember from last week that Lot 
Abram's nephew happens to live in Sodom. And in the process of pillaging Sodom, Cato Laomer captures up Lot, Abram's nephew. Look at verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Were it not for that little detail, this account would be of no relevance. But since Lot is captured and since he's related to Abram, that's why it's in the Bible. Well, as we can see, Abram hears about all of this, and look at verse 13. What does he do? It says, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Anar. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Now I, can think you can, I think you can see what happens here. Abram hears that his nephew's in trouble and what does he do? He pulls together what warriors he has in his household. Like I said last week, don't think of Abram as this sort of solitary hermit wandering around the desert. He's more like a tribal chieftain and as you can see, he's got 313 warriors uh, in his household. And think of what he does. It's almost this midnight special ops rescue mission. Uh, they travel just without any notice at all, just, just going through the desert uh, to, to rescue this nephew, Lot, who, if you think about it, was anything but deserving of this kindness. Now, consider with me the extent of the sacrifice Abraham made here to rescue his nephew. If you really think through this, it's amazing what lengths Abram went to to rescue Lot. First, there's the sacrifice of resources, obviously sustaining 318 men. Uh, that would cost a lot of food, money, uh, animals, surely. Additionally, this would have required a ton of time. We don't get this because we're not familiar with the geography, but do you know how far it was from Hebron to Dan, where he's going? A hundred miles. More than that, after he goes from Dan, he goes to Hobah, which is another hundred miles. So we're talking about an excursion here that would have taken up certainly weeks, if not months. But lastly, also, Abraham sacrifices his personal safety. Uh, this was a military mission. Swords would be drawn, blood would be shed, lives taken. As a result of this, there would be widows and orphans, and there's the high likelihood that Abraham himself might get killed. And yet all of this, Abram willingly sacrifices to rescue his undeserving nephew. Now, think about the last time Abram and Lot were together. Uh, did they really part in a happy manner? Uh, no, if you remember last week, they, they parted in this rather gruff manner. Uh, Lot should have deferred to Abram and said, No, Abram, you're older, you're wiser, you're more wealthy than me. You pick out whatever land you want. Lot doesn't do that. He just jumps at the chance and takes what he thinks is best. And you think about it, Abram easily could have said, Lot made his bed, let him lie in it. Lot made the decision to live in Sodom, he's got to live with the consequences. And yet he doesn't. What Abram is doing in this chapter is really a wonderful illustration of something found throughout the Bible, this virtue of self-sacrifice. The Lord clearly, he repeatedly calls all of us who know him to willingly sacrifice our resources, sacrifice our time, sacrifice even our safety to serve those in need, including the undeserving. Did you know that? Let me say that again. The Lord clearly, repeatedly calls all of us who know him to sacrifice our resources to help those who are undeserving, our time, our money, even our safety. 
we're to gladly give this up to help those in need. It's like Jesus taught us in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Or again, Luke 6, 30, give to everyone who begs from you, and as you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Now, I'd contrast Abram's attitude here in helping Lot with the attitude many in our nation have toward helping those in need, including many professing Christians. Most people in our culture, they have this sort of, uh, people need to be at least somewhat deserving of my help if I'm going to help them. Uh, you know, sure, I'll gladly help, say, an impoverished orphan in India, but if somebody's fallen on hard times because they gambled all their money away, or, or if somebody's in trouble because they're just a drunk, uh, they made their bed, let them lie in it. Do you know people who think that way? Maybe that's the way you think this morning. Well, all I can say is, praise God, the Lord did not take that attitude toward us when we were dead in our sins. Like Psalm 103.10 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. Or even clear, Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Realize this, even when we were lost and hopeless, even when we were hating God and hating one another, the Lord sent us a savior, a rescuer, somebody better than Abram to rescue us from a fate worse than Lot's. We were in this massive mess of our own making due to our foolish, sinful choices, and yet what did God do? He sent us a savior, Jesus, just as he promised. And now in a similar manner, God calls all of us who have received grace to reflect that grace to others, including those who are undeserving. It's like old Matthew Henry wrote, we ought to be ready, whenever it is in the power of our hands, to help and relieve those that are in distress, especially our relatives and friends. Though others have been lacking in their duty toward us, yet we must not, therefore, deny our duty toward them. You think about it, this, this really is the essence of Christian living. Uh, not to help others who are deserving, who are worthy, but to help others because we have been so transformed by God's grace that we're gracious, loving people. So I ask you, what is your attitude toward those in need, especially those who don't deserve help? Toward that impoverished man you pass on your way into Walmart, what's your attitude toward him? Toward that coworker who may have destroyed his life through booze, what's your attitude? Maybe that cousin who's experiencing the depression, the pain of a homosexual lifestyle, what's your attitude? Maybe that young girl who foolishly got an abortion, or one of these Muslim refugees that's trying to make their way through Muncie. Is it the attitude of, you made your bed, now lie in it? Or is it the attitude of Abram toward Lot? The attitude of our Lord Jesus toward us? I'm going to show undeserving love and grace. Again, God clearly calls all of us who know him to gladly relinquish our rights, our time, our resources to help those in need. That's the essence of Christian living. This is God's call to self-sacrifice. Well, notice a second theme with me from these verses. Consider with me next God's assistance to those who trust in him. We'll see that in verses 19 and 20. God's assistance to those who trust in him. Now, if you read this chapter carefully, an obvious question you've got to consider is how in the world did Abram defeat this Cato Laomer in his confederacy of kings? I mean, again, Abram is not a military general with his massive army. He's, he's a chieftain with a modest-sized army. 
But Cato Liamer, he's just going through cleaning house, conquering new kingdoms, gathering up more and more territory. How in the world did old Abram defeat him? Well, maybe you think it's his modest-sized army. As it says in verse 14, 318 soldiers. Now, 318 is more than two or three, but at the same time, it's not a gigantic army. Well, maybe you think it's his strategy, his surprise attack. And it is true, if you look at verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. So he does use what strategy he has, attacking at night when they're not prepared. But clearly those are not the decisive factors. Look at verse 19. Melchizedek, we're going to talk about him in a minute, by the way. He says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Let me emphasize again that latter part of verse 20. God has delivered your enemies into your hand. Well, certainly Abram is the one financing this and he's leading this and he's swinging the sword. At the end of the day, it wasn't due to his wisdom or his strategy or his power. It was because God was with him and that's why he was victorious. It's like Proverbs 21.31 says, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory comes from the Lord. Or again, Proverbs 21.30, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Do you understand what's going on here? Behind all of what Abram is doing is the Lord. The Lord is with him. The Lord is on his side. And therefore, Abram is invincible until God's purposes for him are fulfilled. Reminds me of Romans 8.31, which says, If God is for us, who can be against us? Really get the way in which at this particular time in Bible history, Abram is God's man. He is the primary seed of the woman fighting against the seed of the serpent. God had promised to Abram, I'm going to make your name great. So this entire chapter is really one fulfillment of that promise, God exalting Abram. And you think about it, what's going to happen? The other nations are going to hear, wow, this Abram guy must be pretty awesome. If he can defeat Ketolaomer in this alliance of kings, how did he do that? And he would have the opportunity to point people to the Lord. Now, when we think through applying all of this to us, I really need to stress that we Christians are not engaged in any kind of physical war. We do not take up guns and swords, anything like that. That's never been the mission of the church. It never will be the mission of the church. And yet, we are engaged in a far more serious war, a far more dangerous war. Listen to Ephesians 6, 12. We, are not, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Every single day, you go to war. I, you, I don't know if you look at life this way, but you should. You go to war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Every day, we enter the kingdom of darkness, seeking to rescue people and bring them into the kingdom of light. And our enemies, they are mighty, they are fierce, they are terrifying. In fact, they are much more dangerous than Cato Laomer and his alliance. And yet, just like the Lord was with Abram to bless him and to make his name great, so also the Lord is with you if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus. If you have turned from your rebellion and you're relying on Jesus' death and resurrection to make you right with God, here are some of the promises God has made to you. Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's for all Christians. 2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency at all, in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. In Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail over it. 
Again, if your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, God is on your side. Actually, to be more precise, you're on God's side. And he has given us all the resources we need to experience victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. Did you know that? We already have all of the resources we need to be victorious over the world, the flesh, and the devil. We just need to take advantage of them through the word, through prayer, through fellowshipping with his church. Now, if you've been reading along in our studies about Abram, you ought to be quite surprised by Abram's courage here. You'll remember just a couple of chapters ago, Abram goes down to Egypt, and what does he do there? He's scared about his wife, thinking they're going to steal her, and because of that, he tells a bunch of lies and pretends he's Sarah's brother. Remember that? But here in chapter 14, we see a different man. He throws personal safety to the wind. He's, he's almost, you know, he goes from being this little cowardly, mousy guy to all of a sudden being like a Navy SEAL, and you're wondering, how in the world did this happen? Where did Abram get this courage? Well, between chapter 12 and chapter 14 is what? Chapter 13. And I think what has happened is that Abram is now believing the promises God made in chapter 13. Abram believes Genesis 13, 15, and 16, which says, All the land that you see I give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. Abram knows that promise is true. He has faith that that promise is true. And therefore, it's as if he's invincible until that promise is fulfilled. It's his faith in the word of God that frees him to do these courageous acts that he would not otherwise do in the flesh. His courage flows from his faith. Again, Matthew Henry, whose commentary on Genesis, by the way, is quite helpful. He says this, Biblical religion tends to make men not cowardly, but truly valiant. In the words of Proverbs 28.1, the righteous is as bold as a lion. The true Christian is the true hero. Do you see the connection here between growing in your faith and the promises of God and courage to do what God calls you to do? There's a direct connection there. The only way you're going to come to the point where you're going to have the courage to do what God calls you to do in this dangerous world, in this present evil age, when we're getting attacked all the time by the world of flesh and the devil, is when your faith and the promises of God is strong. That will free you to be courageous. It's faith that God's word will not return void, that frees missionaries to go to these very difficult places, to preach the gospel for generations. It's faith that God will open the eyes of the blind that moves many of us to share the gospel with our coworkers. It's faith that God will use his word to impart spiritual life that moves us who are parents to patiently share the Bible with our kids even when they don't want to pay attention to it. And it's faith that God will work all things together for good that enables people to rejoice in their sufferings, even when they see loved ones wasting away. It's faith that enables courage. If such is the case, can you understand how essential it is, vital it is, to be cultivating your faith, fueling your faith in God and his character? Through things like regular Bible reading and prayer, regular fellowship with your brothers and sisters, opening up your life to invite the loving correction, admonition, exhortation of one another. That can grow our faith. Faith, you see, is like a muscle. It can strengthen and it can atrophy. And it's strengthened through exercise. Faith comes from hearing and hearing of the word of God. So if you're not regularly exercising your faith, strengthening your faith, don't be surprised if you're not able to do the courageous thing God calls you to do. I hesitate to say what I'm about to say because it's often true in my own life, but 
Maybe the reason why you don't have the courage to share the gospel with your loved ones, or maybe maybe the reason you don't have the courage you have to live a godly life in this present evil age is because you're spending far too much time watching TV and movies and not enough time in God's word. For again, faith enables courage. Let's consider one last theme from these verses. God's gracious provision of a priest. We've talked about God's call to self-sacrifice, explored God's assistance to those who trust in him. Look at, finally with me, God's gracious provision of a priest. This is the theme of verses 17 through 24. Now let's pick up in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedoleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, as you can see, these verses record after the battle. Abram's been victorious, he's brought back Lot, and shortly after this battle, out come two kings, Melchizedek and then this other guy, the king of Sodom. Now, you're probably curious about who this Melchizedek character is. Um, For some reason, he's one of those names that we remember. I'm sure you've heard of him before. He's actually quite a mysterious character in the Bible. It's clear that he's very important, but we don't have a lot of information about him. Now, as you can see here in chapter 14, Melchizedek is both a priest and a king at the same time. Now, that's important. This would have been very unusual in Israel. Israel, they distinguished priests from kings. They they came from two entirely different tribes. And actually, if a king tried to be a priest, uh, the Lord probably would have killed him. Furthermore, this passage indicates Melchizedek, even though he's not a Hebrew, he knows the Lord in a saving way. He's not an idolater. He's not a Baal worshiper or something like that. Uh, Even though he's outside of the family of Abraham, he knows Jehovah God. And more than that, he's a priest of Jehovah God. Where exactly he came from and how he, how, he, how he knows the Lord, we don't know. Uh, but clearly he does. But what we can say is that after Abram's victory, Melchizedek blesses Abram. Look at verse 19 again. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, if Melchizedek is blessing Abram, Abram what that indicates is that he's greater than Abram. Uh, This is one of the arguments that Hebrews makes, that the greater blesses the lesser. And therefore, if Melchizedek is blessing Abram, that indicates he's greater than Abram. Following all of that, you'll see uh, Abram gives him a tenth or a tithe. Now, let's talk about that just a little bit. In the Bible, tithing, it always refers to giving at least a tenth of your income to the work of the Lord. It can be more. Uh, There are places I could show you in the Old Testament where the tithe was 20%, 23%, but it was at least 10%, nothing less than that. And as this passage indicates, even from a very early time, giving a portion of your income to the Lord was an act of worship. You see that? We're talking about 2000 BC. God is worshipped through individuals setting aside a portion of their income to the Lord. Realize financial giving to the ministry, that's not something invented by sleazy tele-evangelists who fly around in private jets. No, this, as this passage indicates, God has always been worshipped this way. And just like it was with Abram, so it is also today. One of the ways that you worship God, one of the ways that you demonstrate your love for God is by giving a portion of your income to finance Christian ministry. This enables us to fund world missions, to buy curriculum for the Sunday school, to keep the lights on, to help those in need who come to us for help. 
whole variety of things. But in the words of 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper so that there'll be no collecting when I come. Now, if you have more questions on this topic, and especially if you're curious about tithing, whether or not that's for today, I'd encourage you to talk to me at the door after the service. Uh, But clearly get this point that from the very beginning, God is worshipped through his people giving a portion of their income to the Lord. Now, coming back to this Melchizedek individual, uh, something interesting about Melchizedek is he's the very first priest mentioned in the Bible. After him will come a whole load of priests, but he is the first And according to the Bible, a priest is a mediator between God and humans. It's an individual that stands in the gap, uh, kind of bridging the gap between the holy God and us here on earth. I ask the question, why would we need a priest? Well, the Bible's answer is clear. It's because of our sin. We are sinners. Far from being naturally good, we humans have hearts that love to do what is wrong. And be honest with yourself. Isn't that you? I know it's me. We have hearts that are drawn to, attracted to. Really, at the end of the day, we love to do what we should not do. We find it very natural to disobey and very unusual to be holy. I mean, just ask yourself, is it easier to be crude or polite? Easier to complain or be grateful? Easier to bend the truth or to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, even if you get in trouble? Is it easier to take responsibility for your mistakes or to blame shift, to be resentful or to be forgiving? Be honest with me, folks. We're sinners, and we know it. This is simply the kind of hearts we all have, naturally inclined to sin. And the Bible teaches that because of this, we need a priest. We need somebody to stand in the gap, to bridge the gap between the holy, perfect God and us and our sins. It's like Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So this Melchizedek guy is functioning as a priest between sinful Abraham and the holy God. And the reason why Abram pays tithes to Melchizedek is because he understands that by honoring Melchizedek, he's honoring the Lord. Now you think about it, but God's provision of a priest, not only here, but really throughout Scripture, it's, an action, it's actually an act of love. It's a loving thing. I mean, on one level, it might sound harsh to us to say that God requires a priest and that he's so holy and we're so sinful that we you know, can't God just be a real nice guy and let us come? Well, no, that would not be a loving thing. What's more, God is under no obligation to provide a priest. He could have just said, you guys are sinners, be lost, don't have anything to do with me. But out of love, out of mercy, he has created this arrangement whereby we who are sinners can come to God if we've got the right priest. One more truth about Melchizedek. We learn from other passages of Scripture that Melchizedek is a foreshadowing and illustration of Jesus. Jesus, like Melchizedek, Jesus is a king. In fact, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is king over all rule, all dominion, all authority. And like Melchizedek, Jesus is also a priest, a mediator. In fact, he is the only mediator, the once and for all, never to be replaced by anybody, mediator between God and man. All the other priests before him were simply illustrations of his work. Like John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And after Jesus died on the cross and rose again, the need for any other priests is forever done. 
Because he sacrificed himself as an offering up to God, absorbing in his body the punishment our sins deserve, the wall of separation has been removed. And all of us who trust in Jesus, the great high priest, because of his work, we can come boldly into his presence, knowing God our creator as heavenly father. Ultimately, God helps not those who help themselves, but those who have faith in the great high priest, the Lord Jesus. Those are the ones God is delighted to help. Those who trust, again, not in their works or in anything that they have done, but in his work, in Jesus, our great high priest. Who's your priest? We all have one. Who's your priest? You might not call him that, uh, but everybody has this individual, this thing that we think enables us to come into God's presence. You know, and for some, it is an individual that calls him or herself a priest. Uh, for others, it might be somebody like Oprah or their favorite news channel uh, or some holy relic or lucky rabbit's foot or something like that. But we've all got this thing, this person that we think enables us to come into God's presence. But what I'm telling you this morning is that the only priest that can bring you to God safely, securely, in reality, is Jesus just like Abram, the father of our faith, needed a mediator, so also you need a mediator. And all other mediators are worthless if their name is not Jesus. If you're trusting in anything, anyone other than Jesus, you right now remain lost without God, without hope in this world. You've put your hope in something dead and lifeless. And this is why I'd invite all of us, all of you, come to Jesus today. He is offering to be your priest right now. He is saying, come to me and I will bring you into God's presence. Trust in me and I will reconcile you to God. Put your hope not in worthless things, dead things. Put your hope in me and be reconciled to God forever. I will be your priest. So come to Jesus today. If you've never put your hope in him like I've been describing, come to Jesus today. Stop running from God. Put your hope in Jesus today. Stop hoping in other religions, other individuals, other magic charms as your access to God and trust in Jesus, come to him today. As always, if any of you would like to discuss any of this further, need clarification on something that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, please talk to me after the service. I'll be under the overhang to greet people on the way out. But trust the great high priest Jesus, and today enter into a saving relationship with God. We're almost done, but one last thing I want to emphasize is that for those of us who have put our hope in Jesus, now we have perfect, complete, permanent access directly into the Father's presence. Our high priest Jesus, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God now. He's praying for us, interceding for us, representing us. And not only do we have direct access to God, we are his children, adopted, incredible blessings, all because of the work, not of ourselves, but of Jesus, our great high priest. Listen to Hebrews 10, 22, and realize this is true for you if your hope is in Jesus. Since we have a great high priest, Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. All of that is true, and, and really countless additional blessings because of Jesus, our great high priest. 
Now, to wrap up our time this morning, we've considered some vitally important truths. I hope you realize that. We've talked about how God is a God who calls his people to sacrifice themselves for the good of others. Even when they're not deserving, especially when they're not deserving, it glorifies God to give you your time, your resources, your talent, even your safety to help those in need. Moreover, we've seen the way in which God is delighted to help those who trust in him. Far from teaching that God helps those who help themselves, God delights to be believed. God wants to be trusted. And when we have confidence in his promises, God is willing to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. And then finally, because of our sins, God must be approached through a priest. No other way around it. That was true for Abram, true for all the Old Testament saints, and it's just as true for us today. And now with the coming of Jesus, Jesus is that once and for all, never to be replaced, great high priest, giving complete, full access to God for all who trust in him. So in conclusion, I ask you, are you trusting in the Lord Jesus? Is your confidence entirely in him as the only way to the Father? Are you the kind of person God is delighted to help? Let's pray. Our God, we thank you so much for the privilege of studying your word. We thank you for your servant Abraham and for the way that he illustrates for us the life of faith and the, uh, the way that you can, by faith, make us bold as a lion. We thank you also for your servant Melchizedek and for the way that you used him to prefigure Jesus and his ministry. Lord, work in our hearts, all of us, Lord, that we would look to Jesus as the only means of access to you, our Father, uh, the only way to the Father's house. Lord, give us greater faith in him, a faith that frees us to be courageous when called for. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.